0: Section 2 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Feudalism, its Frankish birth and English development, Ninth to 12th century, by Williams Stubbs, Part 2 in the reign of william rufus the abbot of ramsay obtained a charter which exempted his monastery from the service of ten knights due from it on festivals substituting the obligation to furnish three knights to perform service on the north of the thames a proof that the land of that house had not yet been divided into knights fees in the next reign we may infer from the favour granted by the king to the knights who defended their lands per lauricus that is by the hauberk that their domain lands shall be exempt from pecuniary taxation that the process of definite military infundation had largely advanced but it was not even yet forced on the clerical or monastic estates when in 1167 the abbot of milton in dorset was questioned as to the number of knights fees for which he had to account he replied that all the services due from his monastery were discharged out of the domain but he added that in the reign of henry i during a vacancy in the abbacy bishop roger of salisbury had enfeoffed two knights out of the abbey lands he had however subsequently reversed the act, and had restored the lands, whose tenure had been thus altered to their original condition of rent-paying estate, or soakage. The very term, the new enfeoffment, which was applied to the knight's fee, created between the death of Henry I and the year in which the account preserved in the black book of the exchequer was taken, proves that the process was going on for nearly a hundred years, and that the form in which the knight's fees appear when called on by Henry II for scutage was most probably the result of a series of compositions by which the great vassals relieved their lands from a general burden by carving out particular estates, the holders of which performed the services due from the whole. It was a matter of convenience, and not of tyrannical pressure. The statement of Ordericus Vitalus, that the con- conqueror distributed lands to his knights in such fashion that the kingdom of England should have forever sixty thousand knights, and furnished them at the king's command according to the occasion, must be regarded as one of the many numerical exaggerations of the early historians. The officers of the Exchequer in the 12th century were quite unable to fix the number of existing knight's fees. It cannot even be granted that a definite area of land was necessary to constitute a knight's fee, for although at a later period, and in local computations we may find four or five hides adopted as a basis of calculation, where the extent of the particular knight's fee is given exactly, it affords no ground for such a conclusion. In the Liber Niger, we find knight's fees of two hides and a half, of two hides, of four, five, and six hides. Geoffrey Riddell states that his father held 184 caricates and a vergate, for which the service of 50 knights was due, but that no knight's fees had been carved out of it, the obligation lying equally on every caricate. The Archbishop of York had far more knights than his tenure required. It is impossible to avoid the conclusion that the extent of a knight's fee was determined by rent or valuation rather than acreage, and that the common quantity was really expressed in the twenty librates, the twenty pounds worth of annual value which until the reign of Edward I was the qualification for knighthood. It is most probable that no regular account of the knight's fees was ever taken until they became liable to taxation, either in the form of auxilium militum under Henry I, or in that of scutage under his grandson. The facts, however, which are here adduced, preclude the possibility of referring to this portion of the feudal innovations to the direct legislation of the conqueror. It may be regarded as a secondary question whether the knighthood here referred to was completed by the investiture with knightly arms and the honorable accolade. The ceremonial of knighthood was practiced by the Normans, whereas the evidence that the English had retained the primitive practice of investing the youthful warrior is insufficient. Yet it would be rash to infer that so early as this, if indeed it ever was the case, every possessor of a knight's fee received formal initiation before he assumed his spurs, but every such analogy would make the process of transition easier and prevent the necessity of any general legislative act of change. It has been maintained that a formal and definitive act, forming the initial point of feudalization of England, is to be found in a clause of the laws, as they are called of the conqueror, which directs that every freeman shall affirm, by covenant and oath, that he will be faithful to King William, within England and without, Will join him in preserving his lands and honor with all fidelity and defend him against his enemies, but this injunction is little more than the demand of the oath of allegiance which had been taken to the Anglo-Saxon kings, and is here required not of every feudal dependent of the king, but of every freeman or free holder whatsoever. In the famous Council of Salisbury of 1086, which was summoned immediately after the making of the Domesday Survey, we learned from the chronicle that there came to the king all his witten, and all landholders of substance in England, whose vassals soever they were, and they all submitted to him, and became his men, and swore oaths of allegiance, that they would be faithful to him against all others. In this act have been seen the formal acceptance and date of the introduction of feudalism, but it has a very different meaning. The oath described is the oath of allegiance, combined with the act of homage, and obtained from all landowners, whoever their feudal lord might be. It is a measure of precaution taken against the disintegrating power of feudalism, providing a direct tie between the sovereign and all the freeholders, which no inferior relation existing between them and the main lords would justify them in breaking. The real importance of the passage as bearing on the date of the introduction of feudal tenure is merely that it shows the system to have already become consolidated. All the landowners of the kingdom had already become somehow or other vassals, either of the king or of some tenant under him. The lesson may be learned from the fact of the Domesday survey. The introduction of such a system would necessarily have effects far wider than the mere modification of the law of tenure. It might be regarded as a means of consolidating and concentrating the whole machinery of government. Legislation, taxation, judicature, and military defense were all capable of being organized on the feudal principle, and might have been so had the moral and political results been in harmony with the legal. But its tendency when applied to governmental machinery is disruptive. The great feature of the conqueror's policy is his defeat of that tendency. Guarding against it, he obtained recognition as the king of the nation, and, so as far as he could understand them and the attitude of the nation allowed, he maintained the usages of the nation. He kept up the popular institutions of the Hundred Court and the Shire Court. He confirmed the laws which had been in use in King Edward's day, with the additions of which he himself made for the benefit, as he especially tells us, of the English. We are told on what seems to be the highest legal authority of the next century, that he issued in his fourth year a commission of inquiry into the national customs, and obtained from sworn representatives of each county a declaration of the laws under which they wished to live. The compilation that bears his name is very little more than a reissue of the Code of Canute, and this proceeding helped greatly to reconcile the English people to his rule. Although the oppressions of his later years were far heavier than the measures taken to secure the immediate success of the conquest, all the troubles of the kingdom after 1075 in his son's reigns, as well as in his own, proceeded from the insubordination of the Normans, not from the attempts of the English to dethrone the king. Very early they learned that, if their interest was not the king's, at least their enemies were his enemies, hence they are invariably found on the royal side against the feudatories. This account for the maintenance of the national force of defense over and above the feudal army, the fear of the English. The general armament of the men of counties and hundreds was not abolished at the conquest, but subsisted even through the reigns of William Rufus and Henry I, to be reformed and reconstituted under Henry II, and in each reign it gave proof of its strength and faithfulness. The Wittengamet itself retained the ancient form, the bishops and abbots formed a chief part of it, instead of being, as in Normandy, so insignificant an element that their very participation in deliberations has been doubted. The king sat crowned three times in the year the old royal towns of Westminster, Winchester, and Gloucester, hearing the complaints of his people, and executing such justice as his knowledge of their law and language and his own imperious will allowed. In all this, there is no violent innovation, only such gradual, essential changes as twenty eventful years of new actors and new principles must bring, however insensibly the people themselves, passing away and being replaced by their children, may be educated to endurance. It would be wrong to impute to the conqueror any intention of deceiving the nation by maintaining its official forms while introducing new principles and new race of administrators. What he saw required change he changed with a high hand. But not the less surely did the change of administrators involve a change of custom, both in the church and in the state. The bishops, eldermen, and sheriffs of English birth were replaced by Normans, not unreasonably perhaps, considering the necessity of preserving the balance of the state. With the change of officials came a sort of amalgamation or duplication of titles. The alderman or earl, became the comms, or count. The sheriff became the vice comms, the office in each case receiving the name of that which corresponded most closely with it in Normandy itself. With the amalgamation of titles came an importation of new principles and possibly new functions, for the Norman count and Viscount had not exactly the same customs as the earls and sheriffs and this ran up into the highest grades of organization. The king's court of councillors was composed of his feudal tenants, the ownership of land was now the qualification for wicked instead of wisdom, the earldoms became fiefs instead of magistracies, and even the bishops had to accept the status of barons. There was a very certain danger that the mere change of persons might bring in the whole machinery of hereditary magistracies, and that king and people might be edged out of the administration of justice, taxation, and other functions of supreme or local independence. Against this, it was most important to guard, as the conqueror learned from the events of the first year of his reign, when the severe rule of Odo and William Fittisburn had provoked Herefordshire, Ralph Gowder, Roger Montgomery, and Hugh of Avranches, filled in the places of Edwin and Morcar, and the brothers of Harold. But the conspiracy of the earls in 1074 opened William's eyes to the danger of this proceeding, and from that time onward he governed the provinces through sheriffs immediately dependent on himself avoiding the foreign plan of appointing hereditary counts, as well as the English custom of ruling by viceregal regal Elderman. He was, however, very sparing in giving earldoms at all, and inclined to confine the title to those who were already counts in Normandy or in France. To this plan there were some marked exceptions, which may be accounted for either on the ground that the arrangements had been completed before the need of the exigencies of national defense. In these cases he created, or suffered the continuance of, Great Palatine Jurisdictions, earldoms in which the earls were endowed with the superiority of whole counties, so that all the landowners held feudally of them, in which they received the whole profits of the courts and exercised all the regalia or royal rights, nominated the sheriffs, held their own councils, and acted as independent princes except in the owing of homage and fealty to the king. Two of these palatinates, the earldom of Chester and the bishopric of Durham, retain much of their character to our own days. A third, the Palatinate, of Bishop Odo in Kent, if it were really a jurisdiction of the same sort, came to an end when Odo forfeited the confidence of his brother and nephew. A fourth, the Earldom of Shropshire, which is not commonly counted among the Palatine jurisdictions, but which possessed under the Montgomery Earls all the characteristics of such a dignity, was confiscated after the treason of Robert of Belame by Henry I. These had been all founded before the Conspiracy of 1074. They were also, like the later Lordships of the Marshes, a part of the national defense. Chester and Shropshire kept the Welsh marches in order, Kent was the frontier exposed of attacks from Picardy, and Durham, the patrimony of St. Cuthbert, lay as a sacred boundary between England and Scotland. Northumberland and Cumberland were still a debatable ground between two kingdoms. Chester was held by its earls as freely by the sword as the king held England by the crown. No lay vassal in the county held of the king all of the earl. In Shropshire, there were only five lay tenants in Capete, besides Roger Montgomery. In Kent, Bishop Odo held an enormous proportion of the manors, but the nature of his jurisdiction is still not very clear, and its duration too short to make it of much importance. If William founded any earldoms at all after 1074, which may be doubted, he did it on a very different scale. The hereditary sheriffdoms he did not guard against with equal care. The Norman viscounts were hereditary, and there was some risk that the English ones would become so too and with the worst consequences for the English counties were much larger than the ballywicks of the Norman Viscount, and the authority of the sheriff, when he was relieved from the company of the aldermen, and was soon to lose that of the bishop, would have no check except the direct control of the king. If William perceived this, it was too late to prevent it entirely. Some of the sheriffs became hereditary, and continued to be so long after the abuse had become constitutionally dangerous." The independence of the great feudatories was still further limited by the principle, which the conqueror seems to have observed, of avoiding the accumulation in any one hand of a great number of contiguous estates. The rule is not without some important exceptions, and it may have been suggested by the diversity of occasions on which the feasts were bestowed, but the result in one which William must have foreseen. An insubordinate baron whose strength lay in twelve different counties would have to rouse the suspicions and perhaps to defy the arms of twelve powerful sheriffs before he could draw his forces to a head in his manorial courts scattered and unconnected he could set up no central tribunal nor even force a new custom upon his tenants nor could he attempt oppression on any extensive scale by such limitation the people were protected and the central power secured yet the changes of ownership even thus guarded wrought other changes it is not to be supposed that the norman baron when he had received his fief proceeded to carve it out into domain and tenants lands as if he were making a new settlement in an uninhabited country he might indeed build his castle and enclose his chase with very little respect to the rights of his weaker neighbours, but he did not attempt any such radical change as the legal theory of the creation of manors seems to presume. The name Manor is of Norman origin, but the estate to which it is given existed in its essential character long before the conquest. It received a new name, as the shire also did, but neither the one nor the other was created by this change. The local jurisdictions of the thanes who had granted of sack and sock, or who exercised judicial functions among their free neighbours, were identical with the manorial jurisdictions of the new owners. It may be conjectured with great probability that in many cases the weaker freemen, who had either willingly or under constraint attended the courts of their great neighbors, were now, under the general infusion of feudal principle, regarded as holding their lands of them as lords. It is not less probable that in great number of grants the right to suit and service from small landowners passed from the king to the receiver of the fief as a matter of course but it is certain that even before the conquest, such as proceeding, was not common. Edward the Confessor had transferred to St. Augustine's Monastery a number of allodiaries in Kent, and every such measure in the case of a church must have had its parallel in similar grants to laymen. The manorial system brought in a number of new names, and perhaps a duplication of offices. The Gorefah, or of the Old Thane, or of the Ancient Township, was replaced, as the Presidents of the Courts, by a Norman steward or seneschal and the beidel of the old system by the bailiff of the new. But the goreffa and the beidel still continue to exist in as subordinate capacity as the grave or reeve and bedel. And when the lord's steward takes his place in the county court, the reeve and foreman of the township are there also. The common of the township may be treated as the lord's waste, but the townsmen do not lose their customary share. The changes that take place in the state have their resulting analogies in every village, but no new England is created. New forms displace, but do not destroy the old and old rights remain, although changed in title and forced into symmetry with a new legal and pseudo-historical theory. The changes may not seem at first sight very oppressive, but they opened the way for oppression. The forms they had introduced tended, under the spirit of normal legality and feudal selfishness, to become hard realities, and in profound miseries of Stephen's reign, the people learned how completely the new theory left them at the mercy of their lords nor were all the reforms of his successor more stringent or the struggles of the century that followed a whit more impassioned than were necessary to protect the English yeoman from the men who lived upon his strength. In attempting thus to estimate the real amount of change introduced by the feudalism of the conquest, many points of further interest have been touched upon, to which it is necessary to recur only so far as to give them their proper place in a general view of the reformed organization. The Norman king is still the king of the nation. He has become the supreme landlord. All estates are held of him immediately or immediately, but he still demands the allegiance of all his subjects. The oath which he exacted at Salisbury in 1086 and which is embodied in the semi-legal form already quoted was a modification of the oath taken to Edmund and was intended to set the general obligation of the obedience to the king in its proper relation to the new tie of homage and fealty by which the tenant was bound to his lord. All men continue to be primarily the king's men and the public peace to be his peace. Their lords might demand their service to fulfill their own obligations, but the king could call them to the feared, summon them to his courts, and tax them without the intervention of their lords. And to the king, they could look for protection against all foes. Accordingly, the king could rely on the help of the bulk of the free people in all struggles with his feudatories, and the people, finding that their connection with their lords would be no excuse for their unfaithfulness to the king, had a further inducement to adhere to the more permanent institutions. In the Department of Law, the direct changes introduced by the conquest were not great. Much that it is regarded as peculiarly Norman was developed upon English soil, and although originating and systematized by Norman lawyers, contained elements which would have worked in a very different way in Normandy. Even the vestiges of Carlovingian practice, which appear in the inquests of Norman reigns, are modified by English usage. The great inquest of all, the Domesday Survey, may owe its principle to a foreign source. The oath of the reporters may be Norman, but the machinery that furnishes the jurors is native. The king's barons inquire by the oath of the sheriff of the shire, and all of the barons and their Frenchmen, and of the whole hundred, the priest, the reeve, the six sierils of each township. The institution of the collective frank pledge, which recent writers incline to treat as a Norman innovation, is so distinctly colored by English custom that it has been generally regarded as purely indigenous. If it were indeed a precaution taken by the new rulers against the avoidance of justice by the absconding or harboring of criminals, it fell with ease into the usages and even the legal terms which had been common for other similar purposes since the reign of Athelstan. The trial by battle, which on clear evidence seems to have been brought in by the Normans, is a relic of old Teutonic jurisprudence, the absence of which from the Anglo-Saxon courts is far from curious than its introduction from abroad. Organization of jurisdiction required and underwent no great change in these respects. The Norman Lord, who undertook the office of sheriff, had, as we have seen, more unrestricted power than the sheriffs of old. He was the king's representative in all matters, judicial, military, and financial, in his shire, and had many opportunities of tyrannizing in each of those departments. But he introduced no new machinery. From him, or from the courts of which he was the presiding officer, appeal lay to the king alone but the king was often absent from England and did not understand the language of his subjects. In his absence of the administration was entrusted to the judicator, a regent or lieutenant of the kingdom. And the convenience being once ascertained of having a minister who could be in the whole kingdom represent the king, as a sheriff did in the shire, the judicier became a permanent functionary. This, however, cannot be certainly affirmed of the reign of the conqueror, who, when present at Christmas, Easter, and Whitsuntide held great courts of justice as well for other purposes of state, and the legal importance of the office belongs to a later stage. The royal court, containing the tenants in chief of the crown, both lay and clerical, and entering into all the functions of the Wittendamit, was the supreme council of the nation, with the advice and consent of which the king legislated, taxed, and judged. In the one authentic moment of William's jurisprudence, the act which removed the bishops from the secular courts and recognized their spiritual jurisdictions, he tells us that he acts with the common council and council of the archbishops, bishops, abbots, and all the princes of the kingdom. The ancient summary of his laws contained in the Textus Rofensis is entitled "What William, King of the English, with his princes enacted after the conquest of England. And the same form is preserved in the tradition of his confirming the ancient laws reported to him by the representatives of the shires the anglo-saxon chronicle enumerates the classes of men who attained his great courts there were with him all the great men over all england archbishops and bishops abbots and earls thanes and knights the great suite between lanfranc as archbishop of canterbury and odo as earl of kent which is perhaps the best-reported trial of the reign was tried in the county court of kent before the king's representative Gosfred, bishop of coutance whose presence and that of most of the great men of the kingdom seemed to have made it a wit and gumment. The archbishop pleaded the case of his church in a session of three days, as Penenden Heath, the aged South Saxon bishop, Ethelric, was brought by the king's command to declare the ancient customs of the laws, and with him several other Englishmen skilled in ancient laws and customs. All these good and wise men supported the archbishop's claim, and the decision was agreed on and determined by the whole county. The sentence was laid before the king and confirmed by him. Here we have probably a good instance of the principle universally adopted. All the lower machinery of the court was retained entire, but the presence of the Norman justiciar and barons gave it an additional authority, a more direct connection to the king, and the appearance, at least, of a joint tribunal. The principle of amalgamating the two laws and nationalities by superimposing the better consolidated Norman superstructure on the better consolidated English substructure runs through the whole policy. The English system was strong in the cohesion of its lower organism, the association of individuals in the township in the Hundred and in the Shire. The Norman system was strong in its higher ranges, in the close relation to the crown of the tenants chief whom the king had enriched. On the other hand, the English system was weak in the higher organization, and the Normans in England had hardly any subordinate an organization at all. The strongest elements of both were brought together. End of Section 2